All right. Well, usually around this time, I have like announcements and I tell you about things that are happening, but today I got nothing. So, uh, so we're just going to get going. We're going to get cracking. So uh, I want to invite everybody. How are you guys? Good to see y'all. Hey. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to get going. <laughs> I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Uh, we started last week on this uh, seemingly never-ending journey that we're going to be on for a little while. Uh, through the, our relaxing stroll through the book of Revelation, as it were. So uh, we're going to continue that today. So we're going we're gonna to get going on that in just a second. So we, um, we started this church about two years ago, or actually about uh, just a little over two years. And um, I, the first year of anything is always kind of interesting because you look back and you sort of remember everything with sort of a heightened sense of like what was going on and, and everything like that. And um, one of the things that I've been, that I've remembered a lot lately is like when we first got started, like for the first few months, I got lots and lots of um, emails and uh, like Facebook messages and, and things like that from people who were just kind of checking us out. Basically, like people I didn't even know who were just kind of sending like a random message to a stranger, essentially saying like, hey, I hear there's this church that just got started. I'm looking for a church and I kind of want to know more about that. In fact, several of the people who are here now or who, who go to our church, that like all that started with people sending messages. And it's, so, it's great that people were able to find us in that way. But then every once in a while, I would get a message from somebody and like I wouldn't even get, I wouldn't even be done reading it before I'd have this realization of, oh, this person is never going to come and and if they do they'll hate it and so um like there was one uh, very specifically i remember there was this uh, i got an email from this guy and he said hey i'm, I'm new to the area just kind of introducing himself like gr- i grew up in this kind of church and and he said i'm looking for a church and i he said i was thinking about going to your church but i started reading your blog and now i'm very concerned and so which is always great to end like that's when you start being like oh this is going to be fun and um and it wasn't fun but he uh so he uh, so he, he starts talking in the, in, the, in the email about how he says, several of your blog posts were, see, I can, I, I can remember it because I read it several times, but uh, he said, several of your blog posts make it seem like you're in favor of women in leadership. And that is a problem for me, I know, because it's the 21st century and we're still saying things like this. <laughs> he said, and, uh, he said and, and that's a problem for me. And I just want to make sure that I'm reading that wrong before I visit your church. And so um, I, and I try really hard, by the way, to mess, I, anytime somebody sends me a message, I try really hard to be sure and send some sort of reply. And, uh, and so I sent this guy a message back and I said, no, you read it right. Uh, we are definitely interested in, uh, gender equality at our church. I said, however, and I said, first of all, you're more than welcome to come. We would love to, to see you. And second of all, in a couple of weeks, there's a woman named Christina Gibson who's going to be here and you would love her. So you should definitely come and check that out. Uh, he didn't, I don't think. And so I'm also not at all concerned that he's going to hear this on the podcast. I, I kind of think he probably just moved on. But every once in a while, you get a message, and it, it's essentially sort of this. This it's almost it almost reads like an ultimatum. Like I see that there are these things that you believe and that you hold very like near to your soul. However, if you want me to come and check out your church, you're going to have to let some of that stuff go. And so there does sort of become sort of this weird sense of like, okay, what stuff is, for lack of a better term, what stuff is for sale, and what stuff isn't. And in fact, last year we did a whole series called Just Like Star over where we went through like our six core values as a church and we kind of like articulated like okay here are the things that no matter what if you peel back all the layers of what we do and who we are these are the things that have to always
always be there. And and some things like some things you you need to continue learning about. And we need to con- I, I in no way under the impression that I figured it all out. I'm not about to dig my heels in on everything. However, there are some things that we look at and we think, oh no, to change that would be to change that would be like to rearrange our own DNA. And we're not interested in that. And so. Um, and like, like I said, the, the gender equality question is a very big, like that's, that's a thing that really makes us who we are. And there's no way, um, there's no way where we're, we're going to get rid of that. So, um, and, and so I, I had to tell this guy that knowing full well, like, oh, this guy's never going to come to the church. And so, uh, and the reason I'm telling you that is because we're starting or we're, we're doing, we're looking at a message today that was written to a church. And one of the things in this message has to do with, you got this thing started, and when you started it, it was really beautiful. But over time, you've forgotten who you are. And so there is this sense of, as a church, there's always this sort of sense of, are we still who we started out trying to be? Like, did we, are we, are we doing the thing that we set out to do, or have we just sort of become like an impression of ourselves? And as a pastor, that's always something, like, I feel like one of my jobs here is to always be aware of and, like, um, attempting to protect those things that make this church what it is and what, what makes it the thing that we wanted it to be when we started it. And, um, and so it's interesting now to like be looking at this and find a letter that was written to a church that says, oh, you remember that thing that you started doing that was really beautiful and you were really proud of? You're not doing it anymore. And you've kind of lo- you've lost the plot in terms of what it was you were trying to do when you first got started. So this is one of those, like, this is one of those things that you read, like, as a pastor, and it becomes, like, a very sobering, like, self-examine, like, a thing that makes you sort of examine what's going on inside you, thinking, like, oh, is any of this in me? So, um, so that's where, that, that's sort of the setting of what we're doing today. So I mentioned last week, uh, and we, if you weren't here last week, we started the series, like I said, on the book of Revelation, and we started it uh, by looking at the very first chapter, and the first chapter is this massive, like, macro look at, okay, I'm sending this out. This guy named John is sending out this letter, and he's sending it to seven different churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And so he's sending this letter out, and the first chapter is basically this broad sort of um, declaration of, I realize that you have suffered, but... The good news is that Jesus is stronger than Caesar. And so the whole thing, the whole first chapter is this massive, uh, it's basically a fresh word of hope and love and peace and joy. It's this idea of the last word about you has not been spoken. So the, the, the whole book begins with this massive declaration. And then in chapter two, it's almost like it gets really small, really fast, because chapters two and three are like these tiny little individual letters written to these seven different churches, because each of these churches has something different going on in their midst. And so John, the writer of the book, before he goes any further, says, okay, I got to get some stuff out of the way because there's some stuff that each of you is going through and I need to comment on that. And, and I would argue in order to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand each of these places and what was going on for each of these groups of people. And then once we understand that, all of a sudden, the whole rest of the book becomes a lot easier to get through. And so um, so today we're going to start, we're going to do this for the next several weeks. We're going to look into what was going on in these seven cities and why is John writing very specifically to these seven churches. And so today we're starting off by looking at uh, the message to the first church in his um, in his list, and it's the church in a city called Ephesus. And so he's writing to this church in a city called Ephesus, in again in Asia Minor or Turkey, and it begins like this in uh, Revelation two. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and, by, and we mentioned last week the word angel here is actually in Greek it's the word angelos, which means literally means messenger. And so quite often John's going to talk about angel, but he's not like what he's actually referring to is in each church there was someone whose job it was to stand up and be the messenger 
for that group of people. So if there was any sort of like correspondence or anything that needed to get out, like be mass distributed, like there was a person whose job it was to communicate to the room. And so that was the messenger of that group. And so John is writing to whoever it is that's going to end up being the communicator to this group of people. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And again, I'm going to make a couple of references to last week. Last week, we talked about how there's this dominant image of Caesar holding stars in his hand. And this was the idea that Caesar is like is the ruler of heaven and earth. And so one of the things that John does in this book is he refers to Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars. In other words, Jesus is more powerful than Caesar. So he refers to Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars. And he says, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands, anytime John refers to lampstands, he's referring very specifically to the seven churches in this letter. And so, and and there's a reason for that. There's actually this idea and he'll, he'll make reference to that several times. But there's this very old idea that shows up all over the place in ancient Jewish scripture that the people of God are the bearers of some kind of light. In fact, take a look at... Um, if you, oh, by the way, if you have a bulletin, all the passages are on the back of that if you, if you don't have a Bible. Um, but in, in the book of Isaiah, which shows up hundreds of years before Jesus or the book of Revelation, you have this prophet who's writing to the, group of, to the people of God. And one of the things that this prophet says is speaking on behalf of God, he says, I will also make you, the people of God, a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so the idea of light, this ancient idea, by the way, the book of Revelation is filled with references to the Old Testament or to the Hebrew scriptures. And so, which gives you the idea that this group of people who's receiving this letter actually had a very like real-time working knowledge of all this ancient stuff. And so, and so when you have him referencing light, this is actually a very, very old idea. So Isaiah talks about, I will make you a light so that something good can enter into the world. And so what he's saying is the whole world will know God's love and grace, that your light will be the thing that carries this beautiful message of good news all over the earth. And so that shows up in the book of Isaiah. Now, hundreds of years later, you have Jesus speaking to his followers. And so in Matthew chapter 5, Uh, It says, this is Jesus speaking to his followers. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And so Jesus is speaking to his followers and he's not saying anything new. He's actually calling them into a very old tradition that they've already kind of been aware of. He's calling them into their own tradition. And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, every one of his followers would have been like, oh, that's, that's Isaiah language. Because what we're talking about here is we're talking about there is a presence that we are meant to bear and carry with us. We have some sort of good news. We have some sort of hope and grace and peace that we are invited to share with other people. And then actually in Mark chapter 4, he says something very similar. He says, he said to them, Jesus said to his followers, do you bring in a lamp to put under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its Stand, which is why John refers to the churches as the lamp stands. And so light all through the scriptures is the idea that God is calling us to be some sort of presence in the world. So when, so now in the book of Revelation, as John is writing to these churches, he's reminding them, you are the bearers of light. You carry this beautiful message of hope and grace and love. And you, it is your job to enter the world with the idea that other people need this light. So that's the idea. So John begins the message to the Ephesians by reminding them that there is something that they are bearing that they are responsible for offering to other people. And then, now let's go back to Revelation 2. I feel like I'm going really fast. So 
It's not unusual at all. I don't know why I needed to comment on it. But um, so in in, uh, in Revelation two, uh, again going back to the beginning, it says these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus is with you. And then in verse two, it says, "I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people." that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So he starts off by listing off lots of things that are very good. He lists them as things that are good. Essentially, like, things have been hard and you've kept on going, which is beautiful. It's good. There are people in your midst who want to bring evil into the world and you have meant, and, and you have done your very best to keep that from happening. And then he says, you've persevered and endured the hardship for my name and have not grown, grown weary. So like you're keeping going. So all this is really good, admirable stuff. But then he turns it in verse four and he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And so all of a sudden, like the good stuff that gets listed gets sort of eclipsed by, and yet there's this one thing that you've sort of lost the plot on. He says, you forgot, you've forsaken the love you had at first. And, uh, other translations read, you've forgotten your first love. And then in verse five, it says, consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. So what's going on here is he's actually writing this church in Ephesus. And we mentioned last week, the book of Revelation probably showed up around the year 95. The church in Ephesus had probably been started about 30 or 40 years earlier than that, which means what you have now is you have the second or third generation of church leadership in power in Ephesus. So something has happened between the first generation and the third generation that has sort of shifted how things work. So the question we need to begin asking when John says, do the things you did at first, well, the question, the natural next question is, well, what's he talking about? What were the things that they did at first? So take a look. If you have, um, if, you can, if you can, take a look at the book of Acts, chapter 19. The book of Acts, if you're unfamiliar with it, the book of Acts is this really interesting sort of survey of here's all the things that got going in the first century in, in the pursuit of starting out this Jesus movement. And so lots of stories in, in the book of Acts about churches getting started and about new cultures being entered into. And some of this stuff is absolutely insane because um, it wasn't, there wasn't like this clean how-to manual and there were lots of things that nobody really understood how to do. People were trying this thing for the very first time. And so in the book of Acts, and, and it kind of jumps from setting to setting to setting. And one of the settings that it goes to is when the church gets started in the city of Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 19. So we're just going to read a little bit of what that was like. So in Exodus 9, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 19, it says in verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So there's this one sort of like brief mention here of like basically people's lives are getting better just by accident. Like, like, um, like, hey, Paul touched this apron. There's somebody sick over there. Just go rub it on him and like, maybe they'll be better. And so like there's this this massive movement to get like whatever is going on in people's lives. We got to make somebody's life better and we're just going to do anything we can. Like we're going to, we're going to hold on to everything that may have some sort of like power in it. And we're going to do our very best to get it to as many people as possible. So there's that. And then in verse 13, this is crazy by the way. Like, I don't even know. Um, it's one of those things like you read it the first time and you think like, how do you even talk about this? And so in verse uh, 13, it says some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits because um, I would argue fewer evil spirits is better. So this is probably, they're probably doing good work here. And so it says, uh, who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out seven sons of Sceva, which is like the hardest thing in the world to read out loud in a room full of people, <laughs> seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest were doing this. 
One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So, listen, I've been to, I've read lots of books on like how to like organize a church. And I've been to like lots of pastor seminars. Never once do they talk about what do you do if there's a guy who like just jumps on you and starts beating you and you have to run naked out of his house. That's never once been covered. And so, and so you have this real. And so essentially, what you have is you have this group of people. They enter into this person's house and they understand like there's there's going to be some intensity and some danger here. However. Again, fewer demons is better. And so we're going to enter into this situation, and it's going to be a little bit dangerous, and it's going to be a little bit scary, but that's what needs to happen here, because otherwise this person's life will never get better. And so they enter the situation, and they run out naked and bleeding. And so, um, and so it goes from that into a whole other thing. And then in verse 17 it says, When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So it's been a while, I think, since we had a good scroll burning in the parking lot. But that's something that happened a lot, apparently, in the the early days. And so then it says, when they calculated the value of the scrolls, uh, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And a drachma was about a day's wages. So we're talking like really, really valuable material that they're just like burning. And then it says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And when it says in this way, I'm thinking like, in what way? That's cha- this is the most chaotic, insane story I've ever heard. And so, um, in fact, like I look back on that, on our first year as a church and I think like, oh, we did okay. You know what I mean? Like I never, I was never chased naked and bleeding out of a house and we never had a scroll burning. So like there was, there's all kinds of stuff that I feel like, oh, it was, it was a lot smoother than I ever thought it was. And so, um, but what's going on in this story? It's utter chaos. There is no, there is no rhyme or reason to why like it jumps from one thing to like aprons are being like saved and, and like rubbed on people and like people are naked and bleeding. There's scrolls being burned. There's all kinds of insane things going on. And then in like later in Revelation, John is writing to this group of people and said, go back to that. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what, 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 is the, what is the driving impulse to return to this chaos and insanity? Well, the thing is, what, is, what do all these things have in common? The, the thing that they have in common is that they were being, all these things were being performed for the benefit of somebody else. Like, if somebody is sick, we got to do everything that we can to help the person who's sick. If someone has a demon, whatever that looks like in our world today, we have to do everything we can to ease that pain in some sort of way. In fact, go back, if you look even, like, the whole thing about the sorcerers and the scrolls, what is sorcery? Sor- sorcery, at its core, is the idea that the gods are angry. And that there are these forces in the cosmos that are, that are primarily bent against you. And so the scrolls are like basically this list of formulas that you can perform to make the gods be less angry at you and to bend like the universe in your favor. And so, but what is the fundamental message of Jesus? The work is done. God is good. You don't have to, it is, it's grace, it's peace, it's love. Like if the dominant message of your good news has everything to do with like, listen, the gods are not angry. And you are free. All of a sudden, you don't need the scrolls anymore. And so what's going on? And like, what's the thing that connects all these different stories? They're all bent towards offering new hope and freedom and love and peace to the people who needed them. And so because there is this driving impulse that says, 
even if it, if, even if it chases us naked and bloody out of somebody's house, we're going to do everything we can to make somebody's life better. We're going to heal wherever we can. We're going to bring love and, and peace and healing in every possible situation. And you get two generations later, and all of a sudden you have this writer who says, okay, you're really good at, like, uh, at, at keeping the boundaries up, and you're really good at making sure that like everybody believes all the right stuff, and everybody has like all the right like modes of behavior within the community. But then he says, "But here's the problem: you forgot the love you had at first. In, in, in fact, um, the the Ephesians, one of the things that they were well known for was being really theologically correct. Like this was a community that like had their like, knowledge in place. And so the idea of you got this group of people who knew lots of stuff." And who had lots of ability to like argue and debate and like create all sorts of arguments to to make the case for why they believe what they believe. But then John says this thing of like, yeah, but you sort of like lost your soul in the process. If the whole thing becomes about self-preservation and the whole thing becomes about being right, then all of a sudden there's no blood flowing anywhere. And he says you've forgotten the love you had at first. The love you had at first is this, this notion of maybe we can bring something beautiful and healing into the world. In fact, um, look at what this writer Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've, you've probably heard this read to somebody. But um, in 1 Corinthians 13, this writer Paul is writing to another church in the first century. And he says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. What's he saying? He's saying, yeah, there's a way for a church to exist and do lots and lots of good stuff and still to totally miss the point. In other words, you could be doing all this stuff and you might as well be doing nothing. If there's no, if there is no love flowing out of this group of people, then what is the point? And so for Paul, what's the first love of the church? It's love. Love itself is the first love. The 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 love you have at first is what do you, like, what is the engine? What is the thing that is like beating, like continuing to make the heartbeat? in your community. It's, it's love. And if you, if that stops, then you're just a gong. You're just like this clanging symbol. You're just an organization that wants to just continue to like preserve its own existence. And that's not interesting at all. And so the first letter to this group of people in revelation begins with like, you're doing lots of stuff. Great. But here's the problem. There's no love at all for anybody. You're not offering anything new. You're, the light has gone out. In fact, uh, look at how John, uh, I, I stopped right before we got to this part, but in verse uh, 5 in Revelation 2, look at what he says. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. By the way, we've talked before, the word repent, the Hebrew concept of the word repent is not like feel really bad and apologize. What it means is to return to your original God-created identity. And so when he says repent, he's, he's calling back on this language of like, there is a way, there was some part of your past that was actually beautiful and we need to return to that. And he says, um, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And so there's this idea of if like you've done all this great stuff and it's, and it's good. Like he doesn't, he's not like denying the good stuff. And he's saying, but here's the problem. There's no love flowing anywhere through your community. And if that doesn't change, then what's the point of you being a church at all? That's essentially what he's saying. And so he says, I will remove your lampstand, which is an interesting kind of thing because essentially Jesus is saying, whatever it was that made you like feel the need to start this thing, 
that's going to be gone. It's going to, it will fade out. Um, in, in fact, and, and by the way, it, it, should, it should probably be noted, like, this isn't basically saying, like, Jesus will abandon you or you won't be loved by God. Essentially, what it's saying is you call yourself a church, but if there's no love flowing through your community, then you're not actually a church at all. You're just an organization. And that's not interesting. And that's not beautiful. And so, and so he begins talking about, like, I will remove your lampstand. In other words, like, why be a church at all? And so, which I think is really profound because... Um, if you've ever if you've ever encountered a group of Christians, and you you hear them talk about Jesus and God and the Bible, and everything they say is just like coated with like hate and darkness and violence, and there's a part of you that thinks that is in no way any that that in no way reminds me of the Jesus that I follow. Then and and in fact, if you know somebody, or if maybe you're the kind of person who you you're really interested in Jesus, but you had an encounter with a group of Christians, and all it left you thinking was like how um, how hate-filled and how dark and how controlling and how manipulative that group of people was, and it really turned you off, and you thought like, like I can't believe in a Jesus that this group of people would represent. Maybe this is Jesus saying like, yeah, I'm not really into that either. And maybe the thing that turns you off is also something that turns off, turns Jesus off. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus come, like, basically speaks to the church from the outside and says, like, listen, if there's no love flowing through you, I don't want any part of it. Like, don't put my name on that because that's not what we're trying to do. The thing that we're trying to do, we're trying to introduce love and peace and hope and joy into the world. And if all you're going to do is, like, worry about self-preservation, then just don't put my name on it. That's, I mean, essentially, that's what's being, when he says, I'll remove your lampstand, he's saying, like, what's the point of you even calling yourself a church? If, if there's no love flowing through your community, if, if, if you are no longer bent towards offering hope and peace and healing and love to the people who need it the most, then what's the point of even calling yourself a church? So, which is a really convicting thought for someone who leads a church. Like I, I read this and like, this is, this is one of those things that we have to constantly keep. In fact, uh, I mentioned before, like I did this whole series last year. Um, called Just Like Starting Over. And we talked about like the six core things that make us who we are. Like the very first thing on that list is love. Because if we stop doing that, then we might as well just not call ourselves a church at all. We might as well just be something else entirely. Or not even, like what's the point of doing this if there's no love here at all? And so um, it's one of those things like as a pastor, this is, this is the question we always have to ask. Is, am, are, are there ever points along the journey where it gets really, it gets a lot more interesting to me to be like right or to win the argument or have like, to be able to anytime somebody confronts me with like, well, you don't believe that, do you? To be able to have like a really good answer to them. And, but, but then like in the process of that, I lose the plot on love and hope and grace. Then, then it's over. Like then we lose. The lampstand has been removed. The light, the, the, all of a sudden you can't see that light anymore. And so, um, and, and, and that's that's one of those things like we have to constantly be aware of and constantly be asking. And we're a group of people, and like I, I can I can tell you right now, like I, I can look back over the last two years, and I can pinpoint very specific times when like we could have done that better. Like there there was an opportunity to show love, and we didn't um, we didn't show up like we should have. And that 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 is um, that is something that bothers me, and it's something that I I really want to continue to work on and do better. I mean, we're a group of people, and that's just going to be something that happens. But the constant thing that we have to continue asking every week, every day is. Is this, a, is this the kind of place where people can enter into and find love and grace and hope? 
Or is it just a group of people who's really interested in being right and getting their political candidate voted for and promoting whatever, like, talking points that need to be promoted? But then all over that, like, just in the process of that, we lose the thing that got us on this journey to begin with, which is how do we show love and hope and grace to as many people as possible? And so... Um, so as a church, that's a, that's a very convicting thought. And then as, as individuals, as human beings, as followers of Jesus, this is a really convicting thought. Because at what, like, have I ever been in a conversation with somebody and I let love fall to the wayside because I was way more interested in winning this debate? Or have I ever shared something on Facebook, not out of a sense of love or hope or healing, not because this would bring more light into the world, but because I knew this would make my point better? And so... Um, and so th- this, this confronts us in all kinds of ways. Are there ways, are there times, are there points along the journey where we lose our first love because we're just trying to win or we're just trying to like preserve whatever like little pocket of the world that we've created for ourselves? So for those of us who perhaps have been turned off to Jesus because the last time we encountered a Christian, that whole thing was filled with hate and darkness, um, my hope is that you would heal from that particular wound and that you would find yourself um, encountering something that is more hopeful and loving than that. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus and it's like the whole thing has become about like making sure all the answers are right and all the boxes are checked and all the, all the books are read, um, which, is, which, which is great. I love reading books and having uh, conversations just as much as the next person. But if, if there's no love there, then why? Like what's the point? And so for those of us who maybe we need to wake up and have a, take a fresh look at where, where are the ways, how can I bring more love and hope and joy and grace into the world around me? And how can I bring, how can I, how can I bring that into the world? How can I bear that kind of light? And maybe that's something we need to ask today. In fact, um, we're going to take communion in a second. And um, one of the things that has come up every once in a while is, like, why do we do... People will ask, why do you do what we call open table communion? Which is basically a way of saying, like, every time we practice communion, we say anybody who wants to take communion is welcome to come to the table. And, um, and the answer I give is always, well, because, because it's my job to remind people that they're invited to the table. It's my job to offer grace and peace and hospitality to everybody that I encounter. And so when we practice communion, that's an opportunity for me to remind everybody, you're welcome at the table too. You are loved and you are enough. And if you need a fresh word of hope, then this is the place for you. And once I start becoming the gatekeeper on who can and can't take communion, then all of a sudden the love goes down. The light begins to go out, and I'm not interested in that. And so we take open table communion because we are... We are here to remind people that Jesus invites you too. So, um, and maybe that's something you've never been told. Maybe you've never been told that you are loved and that you are enough and that you are welcome to the table. And if that's the case, then I want, I, we, you are invited to come and receive the body broken and the blood poured out to receive this Jesus who offers hope and grace and forgiveness. Um, if this is very old to you, then maybe something new can be breathed into it. Maybe we can return to the first love that is love itself. So um, we're going to take communion, like I said, and for those of us who we, we need a, we need healing, we need some sense of like, oh, maybe Jesus is better than all the, the ways that he has been portrayed to me, then maybe we need to come and encounter that for perhaps the first time in a while. And for those of us who need to be woken up to our first love, then maybe we can receive the body and the blood or the, the bread and the cup. And to simply remind ourselves that we are a part of a journey and a part of a story that finds its roots in love itself. So...
That's the question. That's the, that's the convicting, constant question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we doing a lot of good stuff, and yet if, if there's no love here, then what's the point? And how do we become people who bear love in every possible way? How do we become bearers of light, of grace, and love, and hope, and peace? So um, let me pray for us. And then if you want to take communion, you, uh, you're more than welcome to. If you don't, if that's not something you're comfortable with, if, you don't, if it's just not something you're, you feel like you can do today, that's totally okay, too. You're more than welcome to remain exactly where you are. Um, that's totally up to you. We have uh, wine and bread. We have grape juice and gluten-free. So if you, need, uh, if you need grape juice or gluten-free, please let me know when you get up here. So um, let me pray for us, and we'll do that. God, we... We thank you for inviting us into a story that finds its roots in love. And we pray for those of us who have been wounded. We pray that there would be a healing of that. For those of us who have been told that Jesus isn't interested in love or hope or peace. May we take another look and find that there's love and hope and peace all over this story. For those of us who need to repent of all the ways that we're trying to be right, and we've sacrificed love in the process, forgive us for that, and remind us of the light that we carry. Remind us that our calling, our very first calling, is to show love wherever we can, to bear light wherever we find darkness. And for those of us who have never encountered you, for those of us who have never, um, who have never per- chosen to participate in this ongoing story that you were telling, may we take another look. May we join with those around us who say, I will be a follower of Jesus because I want to be a part of a story that is rooted in love and hope and grace. In the name of your son, Jesus, who walks among the lampstands, we pray. Amen.